Help me welcome up Alan Sleeman. Thank you. Good evening. My, uh, my parents were born in Baghdad, Iraq. As you can imagine, it's not a great vacation destination, by the way, so in case you're thinking about going there, it's, now's not the time. Uh, my brother and I, though, were not raised as Muslims, even though my parents were born in the Middle East, and indeed all of my family's from the Middle East. Uh, and the reason why we were not raised as Muslims is because my family, ethnically, is Assyrian. Now, this is not to be confused with Syrians who are from the country Syria, which is a country that exists today, but rather we are Assyrians from a country called Assyria, which hasn't existed for, oh, I don't know, 2,700 years. So just out of curiosity, raise your hand if you've heard of the Assyrian people. Yeah, it looks like most of you have. Chances are, if you've read any parts of the Old Testament, you'll recall the Assyrians are talked a lot about in the Old Testament. Unfortunately for me, they were the sworn enemies of Israel, so consequently that made us the sworn enemies of God. So that was kind of a bummer growing up and finding that out. But, um, you know, it's funny. My parents, they knew this sort of negative fact, and they would always try to spin it in a positive way, but it never worked. But nevertheless, when I was like seven or eight years old, I remember they would come up to me, and they would be like, hey, guess what, little Alan? Guess what? Our people are talked about in the Bible. But you know what? We're the bad guys, you know? So with a lot of therapy and counseling, you get over the emotional turmoil of knowing God doesn't love you and have a wonderful plan for your life. No, he does. I'm, I'm kidding. He does. But, uh, you know, one of the reasons why the Assyrians were so hated and feared is if you study world history, you actually find out that the Assyrians were just extremely brutal people. Like, I'm talking about ancient history, you know? We were known to capture our enemies, of course, and just put the fear of God in them. Like we would, we would, you know, chop off their heads and then throw their heads against walls. We were known to gouge out people's eyeballs. We would skin people alive. We would, we would kill people, take their dead bodies, put them on spears, light their bodies on fire, and use their burning bodies as light for our parties at night. We're a lot nicer now, though. Uh, in fact, I haven't hurt anybody today, so I'm on a roll. Be of good cheer. If you uh, have a question later on, I'll... I won't kill you. I'm good with that, you know. But enough about my problems. Let's, uh, let's focus on the topic that we're here to discuss and take a closer look at Islam. And we'll be spending two weeks on this material. So, of course, today and then next week we'll cover part two. And I want to emphasize now, and I'll probably mention it at the end again, and that is if you're here for, for this week, that means you have to come to next week. And it's not just because we want a big crowd. It's because I'm going to be covering some material today that might make it sound like I'm kind of giving sort of maybe the usual spin that Christians love to say about Islam and making it sound like Islam's all, you know, nasty and bad. But in reality, uh, you know, this talk is normally given in sort of a single setting where you hear part one and part two in one setting, so nobody hears part one and then misses out on part two. But there's a chance that you will miss out on part two. So I'm encouraging you, make sure you come back to part two so you catch the full balance of what I'm trying to communicate about this topic. Um, anyways, having said that, let's, let's dive into our material. As many of you probably know, on the morning of September 11th, 2001, 19 Muslim terrorists hijacked four airplanes and used them as missiles 
to attack the United States. As you know, they caused severe damage to the Pentagon. They destroyed the World Trade Center. And in the process of that day, they killed 2,975 innocent civilians. Just 29 days after that event, Oprah Winfrey invited on her television show, Queen Rania. Now, Queen Rania is the queen of an Islamic country, the country of Jordan. And Queen Rania is herself a devout Muslim. And Queen Rania allegedly can speak on behalf of Islam because she's a queen of a Muslim country and she's a Muslim herself. And her job that day on Oprah Winfrey's TV show was to fix Islam's massive public relations problem. Because as you can imagine, many Americans up until that point hadn't thought too much about Islam. Oh, sure, they had seen the movies of Arnold Schwarzenegger going after the, the Middle Eastern terrorists, you know. But they kind of wondered, well, that's just the movies, you know. It, it, that's not real life, is it? Or is it? Is this what Islam's about, flying airplanes into buildings? Come on. And so Oprah Winfrey asked Queen Rania that day a number of questions. And one of them was this. Does Islam, do Muslims want to force their religion on everyone in the world? And to this question, Queen Rani said no. She says the fact that Islam is very tolerant means that it doesn't impose anything on other people. Now, Queen, I'm sorry, uh, Oprah Winfrey, being the good feminist that she is, of course, is thinking to herself, wait a minute. I've seen how many women are treated in Islamic countries. I've seen how many women are, are forced to dress. Some countries don't even let women get driver's licenses or go out on their own. And it seems like Islam oppresses women. And yet, here you are, Queen Rania, claiming to be a Muslim from a Muslim country, and you're dressed kind of like many Westerners would dress. I mean, right? I mean, she's dressed the way you or I would dress. Well, not me, but the women in the room, of course, right? Right? She's not wearing a veil. She's dressed like a very Westerner person, very modern. And so Queen Rania was forced to answer the question, then, well, doesn't Islam oppress women? And to this question, Queen Rani said, no. She says, Islam views women as full and equal partners to men. So women's rights are actually guaranteed in Islam. Now, when September 11th happened, President Bush was the president at the time. And he, of course, had to make many uh, public statements about this topic. And he said, look, Islam's a peaceful religion. And Muslims are a peace-loving people. And as you can imagine, even President Obama has weighed in on the issue and spoken a number of times addressing the question of Islam and terrorism and violence and all this stuff. And he said things like this. The Holy Quran teaches, and here, by the way, he's, for the most part, he's paraphrasing uh, a verses, some verses in the Quran. He says, look, whoever kills an innocent, it's as just as if he's killed all mankind. And whoever saves a person, it's just as if he's saved all mankind. And of course, the idea that President Obama is trying to advance here is saying, look, the Quran teaches that if you just kill one innocent human being, it's as bad as killing every person on the planet. So therefore, what the terrorists did on September 11th is not Islamic. It violates the teaching of the Quran. Now, just remember this verse, though, because we'll get back to it uh, later on today. So we often hear these very politically correct statements, like the one uh, like the ones we've heard from uh, the presidents and from Queen Rani and other people. But then we also see all these other violent acts done in the name of Islam. Obviously, September 11th, uh, suicide bombings that were once a rarity are, are commonplace now 
in countries like Iraq and Baghdad, where my, my, my family still lives today. I still have cousins in Baghdad. And they routinely tell me about the suicide bombings that occur there. Uh, we hear about them in Afghanistan and elsewhere, and of course, even now in Western countries. And so we have these two different pictures. We have the picture of Islam that's depicted by presidents and politicians and queens, and then we have the picture depicted of Islam that's based sort of like on uh, ISIS and Al-Qaeda and all these terrorist acts. And so now we're wondering, so which is it? Is it one or the other? Is it something else in between? Will the real Islam please stand up? It's like, you know, please help us out here. Help us figure this out. You know, which is a true authentic Islam? Are Muslims the enemy? Is, is that the way we're supposed to view Muslims? Now, fortunately, the Bible gives us some principles that can help us to move forward on this very important question. And I want to direct your attention to a passage in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20, where the Apostle Paul is writing the Corinthian church. And this is, uh, in the context, is a very famous passage where Paul says, look, uh, you are a new creation, he says. The old is gone, the new has come. And then Paul starts to tell the Corinthians some of the benefits that come with being a follower of Jesus Christ. And then he comes to our particular passage. Here's what he says. Now all these things, meaning all these benefits that come with being a follower of Christ, all these things are from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Now, Paul tells us, I believe, at least two important things in this passage. And here's number one. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ today, this evening you're here and you're saying, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, then you already are an ambassador for Christ. That is not a title that is given to you after you've been a Christian 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and then we're like, okay, pin the blue ribbon upon your chest. You are now an ambassador. Carry on and do ambassadorial-like things. No, not at all. Rather, the instant you step over the line and decide to follow Jesus, you become his ambassador. That means you become his representative. And tell me, what do ambassadors typically do? Just tell me, what what does a political ambassador typically do? What's their primary function? What's that? Carry a message, okay. And carry a message on behalf of whom? The king, or the person they represent. So in other words, ambassadors uh, represent their king, or their sovereign. In the same way, we as Christians represent Jesus Christ as our king, as our sovereign. That means however we come across to other people, whether we come off as winsome, kind, gracious, and inviting, or we come across as crass, condescending, rude, and harsh, no matter how we come across, we are saying something about Jesus Christ who we represent. And that's why this begs the question, what kind of ambassador are you like? Because this is a a position, this is a role that you have, that you fulfill 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You represent your king. Are you winsome and gracious? Are you crude, crass, and harsh? Either way, you are saying something about Jesus, whom represents. And so this is a key, key question to ask yourself. What kind of ambassador am I like? So Paul tells us our identity. We're ambassadors. But Paul tells us also something else in this passage, and that is what is our mission? 
And what word does Paul use in that, uh, those few verses that's repeated five times in different forms? What word is used that verse five times in different forms? Yeah, reconciliation. And what does it mean to reconcile? What does reconciliation mean? What does this idea mean? Okay, to bring two things back together. That's exactly right. So the, the picture the Bible has, that there is God and there is the world, and these two are at enmity with one another. They are enemies. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.20 there, he says, look, but you have been reconciled to God. You have been taken from being an enemy of God to being made at peace with God. You have been reconciled. You have been, as you said, brought back together with God. And so since now you have been reconciled, it's now your mission to proclaim that same message of reconciliation to the rest of the world. It's now your mission to proclaim the offer of forgiveness, the opportunity to be pardoned from the crimes that you've committed against God. And since we've been pardoned, it's now our job to, to offer that same pardon to everybody else. Not because we're offering it, but because God's offering it. But we're commanded as ambassadors to proclaim that same message. So it's really interesting because in this short passage, Paul answers a fundamental question that many Christians ask. And that is, what's God's will for my life? What's my purpose in life? Well, the answer is pretty straightforward. The Bible says, you are an ambassador for Christ. That's your identity. And your job is to proclaim the message of reconciliation. That's your mission. So in a nutshell, Paul answers this key question for all of us. Now, of course, how you might actually, how that might actually play itself out amongst a body of believers of this size, of course, is going to vary from person to person because obviously the Holy Spirit empowers different people with different gifts. But generally speaking, that's our identity, ambassadors, and that's our mission to proclaim the message of reconciliation. So the question then becomes, how do we fulfill our role and accomplish that mission? As practically speaking, as Christians. And I submit to you the answer is, the way an ambassador would do it. And what do ambassadors typically do? Ambassadors typically learn and then they engage. First they learn and then they engage. And I submit to you that we should do the same thing. We need to learn about Islam and then we need to learn how to engage Muslims. Okay? Now think about this. And, and, we, and I kind of want to divide up today and next week into these sections. So generally speaking, we're going to do a lot more learning about Islam today and then next week, we'll talk about how to engage Muslims. So this is why, again, you've got to come to both sections because it really, uh, you know, the, the whole message is encompassed by both parts, not just today's part. But if you think about it, any ambassador, before they go to, say, a foreign country, let's say we send a United States ambassador to, um, say, China, for example, or Iran, or whatever country it might be, what does an ambassador typically do first? Well, they learn, Right? They learn about the country, the language, the people, their history, their demographics, their foreign policy concerns. Why? So they can draw upon that information to more carefully craft their message they want to communicate to that country and to those people. And in the same way as ambassadors for Christ, we should also do the same. We should also learn about Islam, the religion, the doctrines, the behaviors, the people, the, their, their, their writings, their teachings, all that stuff. Why? So we can draw upon that information to more carefully craft our message to Muslims, which of course really isn't our message. It's God's message. <laughs> the message of reconciliation, the offer 
that God makes to all people to be pardoned for the crimes they've committed against him. And so that's why I say, as ambassadors for Christ, we need to learn about Islam and then engage Muslims. And we can do this, firstly, by learning about um, Islam and Muslims. Now, what are some possible ways we can first just learn about Islam? What, give me, throw out some ideas of what we could do potentially to learn about Islam and Muslims. Okay, read their books. And so I'll mention a couple of their books that are very uh, important to Islam tonight. And uh, of course they have the Quran, which is the one probably you're most familiar with. They believe this is the, the word of God. And of course reading their book would be a helpful way to understand some of their core teachings. Now the challenge with reading, for example, their books like the Quran, is that the Quran is rather difficult to read. And I, I don't say this to be mean, um, I'm not trying to slight the Quran in, in any way at this point here. I'm just simply saying that the Quran is not written in any logical or chronological order. So you know with the Bible, you know, you have Genesis at the beginning and you got Revelation at the end. And generally speaking, the Bible goes from the beginning of time towards the end of time. And it roughly goes in a chronological fashion. That's not the case with the Quran. The Quran, even though it's about this length of the, of the New Testament... So it's certainly shorter than the Bible. Uh, it has 114 chapters, and these 114 chapters are not arranged in any chronological fashion or any logical fashion. So it becomes very difficult to read. But certainly, that would be one, one option, is to read the Quran, okay? Or read some of their, their writings, their books. What's another way we can learn about Islam? I'm sorry? Visit a mosque, Absolutely. Right? So there's lots of mosques in Texas. Of course, there's lots of mosques all over the country and indeed mosques all over the world. And I, I, I make a regular practice to take Christians and I'll take a group of 40 or 50 Christians. We'll learn about Islam and then we call up a mosque and we talk to the imam and say, hey, I want to bring 40 Christians to the mosque. Would you mind? And they're like, no, that's wonderful. We'd love it, you know? And so they're totally open to this. I mean, so long as I call ahead. Obviously, if I go by myself... It's no big deal if one person's there. But if I'm going to bring 40 people, they want to know about it, right? So I call them up, and we usually arrange for an opportunity to watch their Friday prayers. Their Friday prayers are sort of their, their major, like, big, big day of the week, kind of like our Sunday. And um, so we can watch their prayers. We get a tour of the mosque. Um, and, and this sort of demystifies sort of what goes on behind the doors of a mosque. Because everyone's wondering, like, what's going on? What sort of secret things are happening there? And if you attend a mosque, you kind of find out what's going on there. And it's not incredibly secretive. A lot of things are pretty obvious. There's, a, there's usually someone who stands up and gives a message. Uh, they do prayers. Uh, they do a whole bunch of other things. But for the most part, it's kind of what you'd expect to go on inside a mosque. And in fact, sometimes afterwards, I arrange for their... Um, for them to bring a presenter to tell us about Islam. And so usually I say, look, bring us your top Islamic scholar to present to these 40 Christians why we should become Muslims. And so once that person comes, they present, and then of course we have an opportunity to ask questions, and we have a great dialogue and have a, have a great amount of fun doing this. And they enjoy it, we enjoy it, and I've been doing this for years and have never had a problem doing this. Okay? By the way, I've done it in the United States, but also in the Middle East. I, I just got back from Egypt just a couple weeks ago, and so I, I go to the Middle East on a regular basis, training Arab Christians in theology and apologetics, and so um, I've been to mosques both in the U.S. and outside the U.S., including the Middle East. So I've never really had a problem uh, doing these kinds of things. So we can read their books, we can attend a mosque. What else can we do? Yes? Yes. 
<laughs> okay. Yeah, we could, you can look up apologetics like me on the internet. Yes, I'll give you $20 for saying that. Thank you very much. Uh, just ask me later on. Yeah, I mean, certainly you can go to, certainly go to people who, who study Islam or who talk to, to Muslims on a regular basis. Absolutely, that's one way to do it. Uh, good. What, what, other, what other things could you do? I'm sorry, one person? Yes? Yes, befriend a Muslim. Maybe you have a Muslim neighbor, a friend, a family member. Get to know them. I mean, they're, they're people like anybody else, right? So this is a great idea. And one of the reasons why it's a good idea, oh, I should say, there's three reasons why it's a good idea. But number one is, first of all, you get to build a relationship with a Muslim, which is, of course, in itself a good thing. Because remember, relationships are the bridge by which we can show love, communicate truth, uh, you know, tell people about the gospel or whatever it might be, okay? So that's certainly one thing. Number two, by befriending the Muslim and then saying, hey, you know what, let's go to Starbucks and sit down and have some tea and just chat. You know what, I'm a Christian, I know you're a Muslim, but frankly, I don't know a lot about Islam. Would you just tell me about, you know, what does it mean to be a Muslim? I'd love to know. So you'll, you'll build your relationship with them, you'll learn about Islam, and then number three, you'll learn about their version of Islam. Because as you know, just like in any religion, not everybody who claims to be a Muslim behaves or believes exactly the way Islam, Orthodox Islam teaches. And I'd say that's the true, the same thing with, even with Christianity. So absolutely, uh, befriending a Muslim and talking to them would be a great idea as well. Anything else comes to mind? I heard a second, uh, somebody else speak at the same time. Sorry? Oh, I'm, I couldn't see. You said something about Ramadan? Participate in Ramadan? Okay, so Ramadan is a fast that Muslims do for a month long. And um, you could potentially as well fast at a, at, a, at a time that correlates with Ramadan. You don't want to observe Ramadan because Ramadan, as I'll mention later on, is intended to commemorate Muhammad receiving the Quran. So obviously you don't want to commemorate that because that would go contrary to Christian beliefs. But, I mean, certainly we as Christians have the discipline of fasting, so there's no reason why we can't fast as well. But you just want to make sure that you're not doing it for the sake of, of Ramadan itself. But if you want to like, hey, you know, you're fasting, I'm fasting too. Let me tell you why I'm fasting. Why are you fasting? Absolutely, there's nothing wrong with that. Good. Anything else that comes to mind? Oh, and so by, by the way, by, by observing Ramadan, or not observing, but by uh, kind of paralleling Ramadan in terms of a fast, that of course would give you an opportunity to, to sit down with your, with your Muslim friend or family member and talk about Islam. So that'd be great. Yes? Okay, you can take a course in comparative religions. Absolutely, you'll learn about Islam and probably a whole bunch of other religions and how Islam compares and contrasts with other religions. So these are all great ideas. Um, uh, some of them though, like meeting with a Muslim uh, friend or even taking a comparative religions class, uh, even attending a mosque, the liability, though, with some of these uh, ideas is this. You're still going to hear what they think Islam is about. Right? You'll hear their version of Islam. And while it might be true and authentic Islam, there's also a chance, especially if they're a Muslim living in the Western country, that they'll be tempted to give a politically correct version, maybe not intentionally, but because they have been sort of affected by Western ideas. And so they'll advance a more westernized version of Islam. And so this brings us back to that same question. How do we determine then whether a teaching, a behavior, or a claim about Islam is actually authentic or not? And so I want to give you a solution to this question. Well, yes, and that, that actually gets to my next point. So you're, 
maybe you're looking at my notes. <laughs> so yeah, this, no, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So we're going to get to that right now. So the solution is simple. What matters in Islam is authority. If you want to know whether a teaching or a behavior or some kind of practice or ritual is Islamic, you have to look at what authoritative sources in Islam say, not what Queen Rania, President Bush, or President Obama say. Okay? Now, what they say might be true, but they got to be able to back it up with authoritative sources. And so here I want to make an important distinction that will carry over for the rest of today as well as next week. And that is, you have to make a distinction between Islam and Muslims. Islam is the religion. It's the name of the religion, and it entails the behaviors and the doctrinal beliefs and systematic teaching. Muslims are the people who follow that religion. Okay? So just like we have Christianity is the name of the religion, its teachings and its doctrines, Christians are the ones who follow that religion. Okay? So we have to distinguish between Islam and Muslims because Islam might teach all sorts of things, but many Muslims might not follow all of those things. And indeed, that's the case. And by the way, that's the case even with Christianity. Christianity says a lot of things, morality-wise, that many Christians don't obey or follow. So we have this in, in many religions. I'm not saying it's just unique to Islam. But we have to make this distinction. Now, when it comes to Islam then, in terms of authoritative sources, here are three key sources that you need to be aware of. Number one is this, the Quran. Obviously, this is the one that's probably most well-known. The Quran, they believe to be the literal words of Allah. The literal words of Allah. This is not to be confused with, in Christianity, what we have, the doctrine of inspiration. So when we talk about the Bible, we say the Bible is the inspired word of God. Now, what we mean by that, or what that doctrine means, is that, that God, through the Holy Spirit, inspired human authors to write certain things down. And what they wrote down is exactly what God intended them to write down. So God uses their personalities and their writing styles and different types of literature style to write down things. And it's exactly what God intended them to write down. And that's why we say it's God's word, but it's the inspired word of God. That's not the claim that Muslims make with regards to the Quran. They would say the Quran are the, is the literal words of Allah in the sense that there is a book in heaven on tablets called the Quran. And its contents has been dictated word by word through an angel, the angel Gabriel, to a man named Muhammad. So the words and contents of the Quran were dictated over a 22-year period to Muhammad through just little dictation. So uh, according to Islamic tradition, the angel Gabriel appears to Muhammad and says, hey, recite this. And so over a 22-year period, this angel appears to Muhammad and tells him the contents of the Quran. He eventually memorizes it and tells it to everybody else. Okay? And so that's what I mean by they claim it's the literal words of Allah. Now in Islam, this is the highest authority. There is no higher authority than the Quran. In fact, they would say that, that, that the parallel to the Quran in Christianity is not the Bible, but rather Christ himself. So just like we would say that Christ is the divine logos, the divine word, some Muslims would say that the Quran is the divine word in that same sense. So the Quran is the, the most authoritative source in Islam. Of course, a key source you need to know about. 
But a second source of authority is called hadith. And hadith literature are simply written traditions of what Muhammad either said, did, or approved of. Okay? So, you know, as Muhammad was living, he said all sorts of things on all different kinds of topics. So, for example, maybe one day he was, he was out there, and uh, there's some men praying over here, and there's some dogs barking over there. And so somebody comes to Muhammad and says, Muhammad, uh, these guys are praying, but they're being distracted by these dogs barking. What should we do? So Muhammad might have said, well, okay, look, whenever someone's praying, no dogs for 50 yards, you know. He didn't say yards, obviously, because they didn't use the imperial system of measurement. But you know what I mean. Gave some metric, you know, sense, like, get, it, get them away. So people have said, oh, okay, got it. No dogs for this distance whenever someone's praying. Eventually, people remembered that, wrote it down, and included it in hadith. So these hadith are, again, written traditions that might be a sentence long, a paragraph long, or even a chapter long on all different types of subjects. So he, Muhammad spoke about prayer, about war, about marriage, about divorce, about fasting, about, you know, all sorts of things. And so all these things that he said or approved of or accepted has been put into these huge volumes of literature called hadith. Now, it's important to realize hadith literature is not on par with the Quran. It's not the words of Allah. Nevertheless, it's still extremely authoritative. And the reason is this. The hadith provides very practical applications to the broad principles that are found in the Quran. So, for example, the Quran commands people to pray. But the hadith tells you how to pray, how many times to pray, you know, where to pray, what sorts of things you should do. The Quran might command a Muslim to fight, but the hadith tells you how to fight, when to fight, who to fight, under what circumstances to start, and under what circumstances to stop. And so for this reason, how many of you have ever heard of Sharia law? Raise your hand if you've heard of Sharia law. So Sharia law is simply Islamic law that is instituted in various Muslim countries. Okay? The source of those laws is hadith literature. That's where they get their ideas of how to implement various civil uh, and uh, criminal laws instituted in these countries, they get it from Hadith literature. Because remember, it's very practical, very practical applications to the broad principles that are in the Quran. So that's the second source of authority. And the third source of authority in Islam that's important for you to know about is the Sunnah. The Sunnah is the life example set by Muhammad. In other words, in Islam, Muslims consider how Muhammad lived to be a supreme embodiment of what it means to be a Muslim. So, for example, uh, I know Christians, it was really popular at one point to wear those little bracelets that said WWJD, which stands for what would Jesus do, right? Because we thought how Jesus lived is important for us to, to know about. Well, so if Muslims had those bracelets, it would say WWMD, you know, what would Muhammad do? Um, they don't have that, but I mean, if they did, that's what it would say. Because in their mind, how Muhammad lived in his day is authoritative for Muslims today. And you can learn about the uh, life example of Muhammad from the biographies of Muhammad. And if you wanted to read the earliest biography that's out there right now, it's called The Life of Muhammad. It's by a guy named Ibn Ishaq. You can actually, I think, still get it on Amazon. It's like this thick. <laughs> uh, but it's rated R material, just FYI. It's uh, very violent and has a lot of sexual stuff in it as well. So just be aware of that. But certainly that's a biography that has been given to 
the world by Muslims who have recorded a biography of how Muhammad lived. And that is also, again, authoritative for Muslims today. So notice then, we have a very handy tactic now to determine whether a teaching or a behavior or some ritual is Islamic or not. All we got to do is simply ask, is it taught in the Quran, the Hadith, and the Sunnah? If it is, then it's Islamic. If it's not in there or if it's rejected by those three sources, it's not Islamic. It doesn't matter what Queen Rania says or President Bush or President Obama or your local imam down the street or your friendly Muslim neighbor. I mean, it might matter if they take what, if, if what they say can then be backed up by the Quran, the Hadith, and the Sunnah, then maybe it's true. But just because they're a Muslim or even the leader of a, of a mosque, it doesn't mean that what they say about Islam is true if they can't back it up to the Quran. Now, having said that, let's apply this tactic to a very practical question that almost every time I'm asked. And that is this. What about violent jihad? Is violent jihad a valid doctrine in Islam? Now, let me just make this qualification. I am not answering the question, are most Muslims violent people who practice jihad? That's not the question I'm asking or answering here, okay? Remember, the distinction between Islam and Muslims. Islam is a religion and it's teaching. Muslims are the people who follow it. I'm not asking here, do most Muslims practice violence? Because I'm going to argue today and even next week when we look at the demographics, most Muslims do not engage in violent jihad. My question is, does Islam teach that that's a valid doctrine in Islam? All right. Now, before we can answer this question, we have to answer, or I should say, understand two periods of Muhammad's life. Okay? The Quran was allegedly revealed to Muhammad between 610 AD and 632 AD. So Muhammad dies in 632 AD, uh, but the angel Gabriel begins telling Muhammad the verses of the Quran from 610 to 632 AD. And you'll notice between those two dates, Muhammad lived in two main places, in Mecca and in Medina. Both of these are in the country currently of Saudi Arabia. Uh, Medina is a few hundred miles north of Mecca. Now, when Muhammad first began preaching Islam, based on what this uh, angel had told him, he preached a very simple version of Islam. He preached simply monotheism, charity to the poor, and basically the coming resurrection and judgment. Okay, so it was a very simple version. It wasn't as complicated as we see it now, all fleshed out in modern-day Islam. He married only one woman. Her name was Khadija. She was uh, um, basically his employer. And uh, he was married to her for about 20 or so years. Um, he didn't have any significant wealth. He had a very small following of Muslim followers. Most people did not accept Islam in that particular area where he lived. Some did, but he had a very small following. And he had no military power as a result, because after all, he didn't have much of a following. And for the most part, he was persecuted. And the reason he was persecuted was because he was preaching monotheism, which is contrary to the polytheistic culture of his day in Saudi Arabia. And so many people there had all sorts of idols. And as a result of these idols, many people would make pilgrimages that would come to Mecca, and that would bring in, of course, money and trade and all that stuff. And so by Muhammad preaching monotheism, this was a threat to the culture and to the community and to the wealth of that particular city. So that's why they didn't like Muhammad. So he was persecuted. 
So he's in Mecca for these about 12 years here. And as you can imagine, what do you think the verses of the Quran sounded like during this period of time in his life when he had virtually no significant following and he was persecuted and uh, you know, under duress for most of the time? Do you think it was peaceful or violent? Very peaceful, right. Because after all, if there was a command for him to fight or take control of a certain area, he couldn't do it. Because after all, he had no power. He had no military power, no economic power, no nothing for the most part. So in 622, which is, by the way, the start of the Islamic calendar, some Muslims in Medina say, hey, Muhammad, come up to Medina, and that, this is where we can take your Islamic preaching to the next level, basically. So he flees... Uh, to, to Medina in 622, and this starts the Islamic calendar. And when he gets to Medina, his, his leadership abilities start to really take off. He is able to unify all sorts of Arab tribes around him. He starts to gain a significant Islamic following. Thousands and thousands of people eventually adopt Islam. He marries another 11 or so women. It's disputed exactly how many wives he had. Some say 13, some say 10, but whatever. It's, it's, he married at least another 10 or so more. He gained tremendous amount of economic power. He started to raid caravans and loot, their, loot the money from those caravans. He gained economic power, political power. He gained military power. He developed an army of 10,000 Muslim soldiers. And eventually, as you can imagine, the verses of the Quran that were revealed during these 10 or so years of his life, as you can imagine, were very different than the first 10 years or 11 years. And they were much more violent because now jihad is commanded, okay? Not as, a, as you have to do it every single time, but just that it's now permissible to engage in jihad. Fighting was permitted and commanded in some instances. So when people say, but Alan, because I'm going to cite some passages in the Quran that sound very violent. They'll say, but Alan, there's all these peaceful passages in the Quran. Of course, they were all presented at this period of time when Muhammad had no power and was not in any position to engage in any kind of successful military action. The problem is that in Islam, there is a doctrine known as the doctrine of abrogation. And the doctrine of abrogation says this. If there is a contradiction in the Quran between two verses, because the Quran addresses the same subject two different times, but one contradicts the other, here's what you're supposed to do. The older verse is abrogated or annulled by the more recent verse. So all of the peaceful passages that are cited in the Quran eventually are abrogated by the more violent passages that are found later on. And this is a problem. I mean, again, I'm not saying this to, to like say, see, I showed you. I'm saying, no, this is a problem because now even the verses that were once peaceful, unless, if, they're, if in any way the same subject is addressed, and it contradicts the peaceful verse, then the more recent verses will abrogate or annul the older verse. Uh, were you asking, is there something similar to that in the Bible? Well, yes, in some sense, because we have, for example, the Mosaic Law, which Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. So we believe that Christ fulfills the righteous requirements of the Mosaic Law that, that no human was able to fulfill. And as a result, 
a lot of those 613 commands in the Mosaic Law are, in a sense, fulfilled and no longer binding on the New Testament Christian. Now, I'm not trying to advance my particular view of theology about this, whether you believe in, you know, how does the Old Testament apply to the New Testament, all that stuff. I'm not trying to advance a particular view. But in a sense, yes, there is a similar kind of thing. It's not so much that when one verse contradicts an older verse, it's just that we believe that Christ fulfilled the requirements set up by the Mosaic Covenant and then established a new covenant in his blood. So in that sense, it, there is a similarity, but uh, this, this doctrine is different. It's just simply saying where there's a contradiction, the newer passage annuls or abrogates the older passage. So now, yeah, yes. Oh, okay, so good question. So I, I mentioned that when I was talking about the Quran, that the, I didn't say there was any, I said there's no chronological order to the Quran. That's true. However, every chapter has an indication as to which period of time it was written in. So you can, um, when you, if you get, uh, di- different Qurans have this differently, but some Qurans will say this is a Medinan surah or a Medinan chapter, meaning it's from the time of Medina. Or it'll say this is a Meccan surah, meaning it's a Meccan chapter written at this time. So they're not arranged in any order, but nevertheless, as you read a particular chapter, you can see, was this chapter revealed during the time of Mecca or during the time of Medina? And that's how you'd be able to tell. So, again, to answer the question, is violent jihad a valid Islamic doctrine? You want to turn not to what Queen Rania and other people might say, but rather, what do Islamic authoritative sources say? And I would argue that the Quran explicitly teaches that violent jihad is a valid Islamic doctrine. Now, let me just clarify a couple things. The word jihad simply means struggle. And so many Muslims will tell you, Alan, wait a minute, no, 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 you're missing the point here. Jihad is just a struggle. And there's many jihads in Islam. There's a struggle, a jihad of the heart, which is a struggle to make sure that you think pure thoughts. Or we we have a jihad of the tongue, where we, we struggle to say good, pure things to other people. And then, yes, of course, there's also a jihad, a struggle to fight for the causes of Allah, which is the violent jihad that's mentioned. So that's certainly true, that there are those other jihads. But in the Quran, there are 164 verses that teach violent jihad. This is not some uh, isolated, uh, random, random, you know, random kind of thing that's brought up. It's taught explicitly in the Quran. And again, Why? Because for 11 years, Muhammad was in Medina and had tremendous power, wealth, and military resources for him to conquer and uh, uh, raid and, and take care of things the way he wanted to take care of them. So that it's in the Quran is an unavoidable fact. You, you could just read it. And if you're going to read just one chapter, read chapter 9. Surah 9, it's chapter 9. And that chapter alone has some very uh, frank teaching about jihad. And indeed, it was written... Surah 9 was written in 631 AD, which is a year before Muhammad died. So this is the very end of his teaching, kind of his final thoughts about what people should do. Now, having said that, I want to offer one important clarification here. Many pastors, Christian authors, love to cite verses in the Quran out of context. And as you probably know, don't we as Christians get really annoyed when certain people come knocking on our door and cite verses out of, our, out of the Bible out of context. And we get very annoyed by that. But it's strange that we, we Christians often do the same thing when it comes to the Quran. Let me just give you an example. Surah 9, which again, this is written in the Medinan era, 
one year before Muhammad dies. So it's, it's a very final teaching, meaning if it, if it contradicts any peaceful verses, it abrogates any peaceful verses. Okay? But this particular verse is known as the verse of the sword. And it's the one that if a pastor is going to you know, cite just one verse in the Quran, they'll cite this one. And here's what it says. Fight and slay the pagans wherever ye find them, and seize them, beleaguer them, and lie in wait for them in every stratagem of war. Wow, that's pretty intense, you know? And so what many people apply from this verse is they say, oh, see, Muslims can attack any non-Muslim at any time for any reason anywhere they're at. And this is simply not true. Every time there is a command to fight in the Quran, it is always qualified with conditions that first need to be met and then conditions when, if they're met later on, would cause you to cease that hostility. So, for example, take a look at the context of this verse. When you read the context, you start to realize, hmm, wait a minute, they're talking about here alliances that they've entered into. They talk about fulfilling your engagements. And what you find out is that here's the context. What the Quran was commanding here is if you enter into an alliance with another people group, and they don't fulfill the terms of their bargain according to the, to, according to the agreement, they have four months to own up to that or to follow through on their commitments. And if they don't follow through with their commitments in those four months, then when those forbidden four months are passed, then you can fight and slay the pagans wherever you find them. And then notice at the end it says, but if they repent, establish regular prayers and charity, then open the way for them because Allah is forgiving. In other words, Here's the conditions that first need to be met before you can fight. And then here's the conditions when if you're fighting, if they're met, you need to stop. Okay? Now, does this take away from the fact that violent jihad is commanded? No, it doesn't take it away. But I just want to clarify, we can't just take any verse out of context to mean any Muslim can attack any non-Muslim at any time for any reason. Okay? That's just not in the Quran. <laughs> now, uh, violent jihad is also taught in Hadith literature. Remember, I said that Hadith literature is what Muhammad said, did, or approved of. And it's categorized by subject. So you can go to the section where all the things that Muhammad said about jihad are put together in one section. And this section is incredibly long. And you'll see there all of the things that Muhammad said, did, or approved of regarding violent jihad. And there, there it tells you how to fight, when to fight, who to kill. Here is where it teaches that apostasy is a capital crime, meaning if you abandon your Islamic faith, then you are, you're guilty of a capital crime and you can be killed. And that's why I have friends that have safe houses in Lebanon and in the United States and elsewhere where Muslims have converted to Christianity, have to flee for their lives because, I'm not kidding, their family is trying to kill them. And so we take these former Muslims who are not Christians and unfortunately have to you know, help them relocate to these safe homes until they figure out what they're going to do with the rest of their lives. Hadith literature is also where we see that homosexual sex is considered also a capital crime. So here we see all the details of you know, when and how and who uh, it's permissible to kill or to be involved in any kind of uh, violent actions. And then you have the sunnah. Muhammad himself engaged in Military warfare, he led major military campaigns, he led numerous attacks on caravans to gain, gain money, as I mentioned before, and he also ordered the assassination of non-combatants. Again, you can read The Life of Muhammad by Ibn Ishaq. This is 
what Muslims have given us as the biography of Muhammad. So no one else made this up. It's Muslims who gave this to us a few hundred years after Muhammad died. And it tells the story of how Muhammad ordered the assassination of girls who would sing satirical songs against Muhammad. Here's where you see that Muhammad ordered the assassination of Jewish merchants who did business with Muslims for one point, but then they uh, started writing poetry against Muhammad. Muhammad didn't like it. He ordered them to be assassinated. And in perhaps the most egregious act of violence in his uh, biography, we see here Muhammad ordering the assassination of an entire Jewish tribe. So there were many Jewish tribes that still existed in and around Mecca and Medina. And Muhammad had eventually kicked out all the Jewish tribes except for one last one. And this last Jewish tribe, he took all the men of that Jewish tribe, this is again according to his biography, he lined up all the men in a row in the, town, in the city town square, he had all their heads chopped off and in one night, and then he took the women and the children sold them off, took one of the women for his own wife. And his biography says this, there were 600 or 700 men, Jewish men in all, though some put the figure as high as 800. So again, this is the life of Muhammad, told to us by Muslims, given to us to understand what Muhammad, how he lived. It's not, this isn't stuff that we're making up, we're just taking what they're telling us is his life story. Now you might be saying, but Alan, come on, couldn't you be getting this wrong? Is it possible, you know? What do you know? You're a Christian. How can you know exactly how and what Muhammad said? Well, we can then look maybe at his successors, his friends, his companions, because after he died, what did his friends and companions think that Muhammad had ordered them to do? And now this becomes simply a matter of the historical record. Because as Islam begins to expand, it starts to affect other people groups by which we now have historical records that tell us what, what Islam did. So here's a map of, uh, here's, here you have Saudi Arabia, and here's Mecca and Medina. This is where Muhammad, for the most part, lived and died. The dark orange portion of Saudi Arabia here is the portion of Saudi Arabia that was under control of Islam by the time Muhammad died. So what year did he die? 632, okay. The key date to remember after 632 is exactly 100 years after that, which would be 732, okay? And I want you to see what Islam managed to accomplish in just 100 years of time. So Muhammad dies, 632. Shortly after, they conquer all the rest of Saudi Arabia. They conquer Jerusalem and all of the Middle East. They conquer all the lands eastward to the borders of China and India. They begin to advance across northern Africa. By the way, why did they not conquer this area? Yeah, just desert, nothing to conquer, right? They cross the Strait of Gibraltar, they conquer Spain, and as you can see the arrows here showing the advancing Islamic forces advancing into France. But notice, they're forced to turn around because of Charles Martel, Charles the Hammer, whose own forces stopped the Islamic forces from invading France and conquering France. And eventually they were forced to retreat back down to here. So again, between 632 to 732 AD, this is the expansion of the Islamic empire through military conquest. Now, when they conquered these lands, historians have described what the Muslim people did, and that is they gave the conquered people what they call the triple choice. Triple choice is this. We have now conquered you. You have three options. You can convert to Islam, and if so, then you'll be a full 
full-fledged member of our community. Now, if you don't want to convert to Islam, that's fine. You can remain as a Christian or a Jew or whatever. But if you don't convert, then you have to pay a tax. It's called the jizya. And it's like a poll tax. We'll let you live in our country, in our land. You can remain as a Muslim, I mean, remain as a non-Muslim. And we'll even protect you, but you'll be a second-class citizen. Now, if you refuse to convert to Islam and, or you refuse to pay the jizya, well, then your only third option is to fight us. <laughs> and then if we win, we kill you. If you win, then you can kill us. But that's, in essence, they got to fight at that point. In Iraq today, ISIS, as you probably all have heard about, because again, I, my family, I still have two cousins or family in Iraq today. What ISIS is doing is exactly the same thing as what early Islam did. As they've conquered vast portions of Iraq, which includes many places that uh, were once um, inhabited by many Assyrians, my people, um, ISIS has conquered these people and said, you have three choices. Convert to Islam. If not, pay the jizya, the tax. And if not, you've got to fight us. But the, the tax they levy, this jizya, is so high, no one can afford it. And so since these people don't have the means to fight ISIS, indeed, many people don't have the means to fight ISIS, even governments don't. So what do they do? They flee. And that's why we have thousands and thousands of refugees fleeing from Syria and Iraq. And, and, and of course, many of these people are Christians, but indeed, many of these people are even Muslims who simply don't subscribe to the uh, Islamic teaching of violent jihad that is proposed and advanced by ISIS. Now, am I saying that ISIS is doing everything to the T, to the Quran? No, I don't study ISIS in, in, to a huge degree. But I do know on this question, they're following early Islam as the followers of Muhammad practiced it. And they got it from Muhammad. That's what he said. That's what he taught. If, if I might be mistaken, but certainly the early followers of, of Muhammad are probably not mistaken. Now, I get two responses from Muslims when they hear me say this. Number one is this. They say, Alan, look, I'm not violent. I don't practice violence. I don't believe in jihad. I think this is a gross misrepresentation of what the Quran and Islam teaches. And all the Muslims I know, Alan, are very peaceful people. And when a Muslim tells me this, I tell them, look, I agree. I, I totally agree with you. And I'm glad you're peaceful. I'm glad you reject that. But notice, this is in spite of what the Quran, the Hadith, and the Sunnah teach, not because of it. Listen to me very carefully here. I am not here telling anyone that Muslims are, for the most part, violent, dangerous people. They are not. I have not only been traveling to the Middle East every year for years now. As I said, my family's from the Middle East. We go to the Middle East on a regular basis. My father has worked in the Middle East. When, when he goes there, he's warmly welcomed. When Muslims come from the Middle East and come and stay at our homes, they are extremely respectful to us. They bring us gifts. They're extremely honorable. When I go to their homes, they are very respectful. They like cook amazing meals for me. I mean, uh, my relationships with Muslims have been nothing short of fantastic. And I'm not exaggerating. For the most part, Middle Eastern culture is a very hospitable, collectivistic culture that is very loving and honoring. And virtually all the Muslims I have met over the years have been peaceful and kind and respectful and honoring to me, even when they've come to my home or, as I said, when I've gone to their homes. So please do not hear me say that Muslims are, are all violent people or even the majority of them are. I'm not saying that. What am I saying? That Islam as a religion teaches this. 
But thankfully, as many Muslims will tell me, they don't practice that. Now, the other response I typically hear is this. And this is what I hear like on CNN or whatever, Fox News. You get some Muslim imam or scholar say, well, listen, Islam's a peaceful religion. It's just been hijacked by violent Muslim or violent terrorists. Okay? You've probably heard this, right, before? Some, some version of this? To this, though, I disagree. I think the, actually the opposite is true. Islam's a violent religion that's been hijacked by peaceful Muslims. Right? Because as we look at the Quran, the Hadith, and the Sunnah, these things all teach, and these are authoritative sources. They are more authoritative than Queen Rania or the local Muslim down the street. Because the local Muslim down the street or a queen of a Muslim country can't overwrite what the Quran, the Hadith, and the Sunnah teach. So Islam, at its core, teaches this. But thankfully, there's so many peaceful Muslims who do not want to live that lifestyle. They are rejecting it. And of course, they want to reform Islam to be peaceful. And frankly, I, I hope they're successful at that. <laughs> okay? So again, we're making a critical distinction between Islam and the people. Now, the other objection I hear when I state this is people say, but Alan, doesn't Christianity have its own jihad? I mean, look at the Crusades, where we saw thousands of Christians wage war killing, raping, pillaging, all these nasty things. Or we see Christian terrorists like, you know, and they cite people like Timothy McVeigh or, or um, uh, all these pro-life abortion uh, killers who go off and shoot abortion doctors, you know. We got uh, the Spanish Inquisition. We got uh, uh, Christians today in the Middle East killing Muslims. Christian soldiers killing Muslims today. And so in reality, people say, come on. In the Old Testament itself, I mean, if you made a movie out of the Old Testament, it would also be rated R, right? There's a lot of killing in the Old Testament. Isn't this parallel to jihad and Islam? And my answer is no, it's not parallel for three reasons. Number one is this. War and killing in the Old Testament, for example, served a completely different purpose than what it did in Islam. War and killing oftentimes in the Old Testament was used as a form of judgment against a guilty people. Take, for example, the Canaanites. The Canaanites were extremely wicked people. They sacrificed their children to Molech. They, you know, they heat up these metals and put these babies on there and literally melt and burn babies alive as sacrifices. They did horrific things. And God gave them 400 years to repent. And they didn't. And so God then would often use a people group, sometimes a Jewish nation, as an instrument of judgment to judge a guilty people, like the Canaanites. So God used war as an instrument of judgment against the guilty people. But notice this. God was just as willing to use other people groups, like the Assyrians, woohoo, my people, as an instrument of judgment against even Israel when Israel sinned. In other words, God judges sin regardless of who commits it. He's an equal opportunity judger. He judges the Canaanites. He even judges the Jews, which are his people. So God uses war and killing as an instrument of judgment against wicked people, evil people, when they engage in sin. With Islam, however, war and killing was used as simply a means of Muhammad accomplishing his goals of getting rid of his enemies and conquering more lands and expanding the Islamic empire. Whereas war and killing was never used as a means of spreading their religion of Judaism or of Christianity. 
In fact, um, as I said, Islam used not just during the time of Muhammad, but even the four successors to Muhammad, the four caliphs they call them, used Islam, uh, I'm sorry, used military expansion to expand Islam for, for 400 years after Muhammad died. By contrast, Christianity had no army, and yet from the inception of Christianity, for hundreds of years afterwards, Christianity spread despite intense persecution. And so, again, this is one way that we don't see a parallel occurring. Number two is this. War and killing in the Bible is descriptive, not prescriptive. In other words, when you see war and killing in the Old Testament, this is simply describing what has happened. It's not a command to continue to engage in those actions. God's commands to kill in the Old Testament were localized and restricted for that period or for that specific instance. There is no theology, no seminary, no church, no school of thought that takes the Old Testament commands to kill and makes it normative for Christians today. I don't know of a single one of of anybody who does this. Now you might say, but Alan, didn't the Crusades have a theology that they based their actions on? Yes, they did. But guess what? It was grossly mistaken, and the church has since repudiated that theology. By contrast, Islam has still a robust theology of jihad. And apart from many Western American Muslims, when I go to the Middle East, I don't see Muslim scholars repudiating jihad. They don't do that because they have no incentive to because they know it's part of Quranic teaching, Hadith and Sunnah. Yeah, in America, they'll say all sorts of things. Oh, no, 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 it's, we're peaceful, it's not the same, you know. People are just hijacking Islam, they say all these things. When I go to the Middle East, they don't say that. <laughs> Because it's a, it's, it's, it's a part of the Quran, the Hadith, and the Sunnah. And so when Muslims engage in violent jihad, they are engaging in a way that is consistent with their theology. But when Christians engage in violence or killing today, they are acting against or inconsistent to their theology. And finally, the third reason why there's no parallel to jihad in Christianity is that Jesus is the paradigm for the Christian. You know, Jesus lived a life that was so peaceful that many people mistake him for being a pacifist. I'm not saying he's a pacifist, but many people think he was. I mean, just think about it. Here's a man who had multiple assassination attempts on his life and never once did it retaliate with violence. In fact, when Peter draws his sword and chops off the ear of the servant of the high priest, Jesus says what? Peter, put away your sword. Those who live by the sword die by the sword. And so even when they succeeded in killing him, he still didn't retaliate with violence, even though, as he pointed out, he could, you know, bring out a, a whole uh, a regiment of angels to come down and just wipe everybody out, right? He could annihilate everybody. In fact, Jesus' final command was what in Matthew 28? The Great Commission. And what is the Great Commission? It's a persuasive enterprise. Go and make disciples of all nations, persuading them to believe in Jesus and to become a follower of him, Okay? Whereas the last command of Muhammad was, of course, to fight all the people until there's no one that says, uh, until, until all people say there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his messenger. And again, when you look at Jesus, you see this is the paradigm for us as Christians. And for Muslims, it's Muhammad. He's the paradigm. And we've looked at how he lived. We've seen his biography, or at least snapshots of it. He ordered the assassination of non-combatants. He ordered the people to fight and all these other things. And so I submit to you that if you're a Muslim and you want to 
believe in a religion that advocates peace, then you could do no better than following Jesus, who is the prince of peace. So that's why I don't think there's a parallel to um, jihad in Christianity. Um, I want to skip over just a section here for a minute and just turn to our uh, section on the five pillars of Islam. So I want to close with this and I want to take some questions at this point or after this. Um, so remember what we're talking about here. We're talking about being an ambassador for Jesus Christ. What that means. It means learning and engaging. And so far we're talking about the learning. So we've learned about the three sources of authority in Islam. The Quran, the Hadith, and the Sunnah. And we've learned that we can use them as a tool or a tactic to determine whether a teaching is truly Islamic or not. Okay? So that's one thing we've learned. Those three sources and that tactic of evaluating certain claims about Islam. But I also want to close with the five pillars of Islam. These are required behaviors. Required actions that every Muslim is supposed to follow. So it'll tell you something about their rituals and their practices. All right? So number one is this. The reciting the creed. Every Muslim is, re is required to recite this kind of confessional statement. Somebody says, there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet or his messenger. And so indeed, if you wanted to become a Muslim here tonight, all you got to do is say this creed, and of course sincerely believe it, and you become a Muslim. I'm not, I'm not saying you should. I'm just saying if, if you wanted to. Uh, this is sort of like our version of the sinner's prayer. Not that I think the sinner's prayer is a valid theological idea. But it's sort of like you say this, you begin your journey as a Muslim. All right? Muslims are also required to pray five times a day. And what direction do Muslims face when they pray? Yeah, so I heard east and I heard Mecca. So east would only apply if you happen to be in a part of the earth where... Mecca, the city in Saudi Arabia, is actually east. Okay? So obviously if you're in Alaska, you'd face north or something like that. Uh, so it just depends on where you are on the planet. But generally speaking, yeah, you're facing towards Mecca. Now what's in Mecca? Why do Muslims face Mecca? What's that? Yeah, so there's this thing called the Kaaba, which I'll show a picture of in a moment. But it's a, a structure that Muslim tradition says that maybe Adam built or Abraham reconstructed it or also built it himself. It's conflicting reports, but nevertheless, that Allah commanded Abraham, let's just say, to build the structure, and it's in this direction that every Muslim must face when he prays. So, um, yeah, so prayer five times a day. Um, there's also the fast of Ramadan, which is, was mentioned by the gentleman over there. And the fast of Ramadan is a one-month-long fast. Now, they follow the lunar calendar, so it's not going to always be the same month every year. It's going to kind of shift, and it's not 30 or 31 days. Again, it's according to the lunar calendar. But Muslims must fast from dawn to dusk. So in other words, for the daylight hours during that month, they can't eat, drink, smoke, or have sex. All right? Now, obviously, before sunrise and after sunset, they're free to do those things. But during those times, they're not allowed to because they're commemorating Muhammad receiving the Quran from which angel? Gabriel, that's right. Ah, we'll make a good Muslim out of you guys. All right. <clears throat> Giving alms. Muslims are also required to give 2.5% that goes towards the poor and needy. So <clears throat> if you believe in the tithe as a Christian, then look, it's cheaper to be a Muslim, right? Only 2.5%. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Now you're wondering, am I a mole? Is he really a Muslim? <clears throat> Yeah, so 2.5% of the money goes towards the poor and needy. And then finally, the fifth pillar, 
which is the most important deed, most important behavior any Muslim can do, is take a pilgrimage to Mecca. And Mecca, of course, as I said, is in Saudi Arabia. But at least once in their lifetime, a Muslim is required to travel to Mecca and for a period of about a week or so, perform a number of different rituals. And here you see um, this mosque, which is the the holiest mosque in Islam. It's in the city of Mecca. And you see there, kind of in the middle there, the the Kaaba, which is enlarged right here. Now, it's a 30 foot by 30 foot masonry structure, but um, it looks black only because there's this... um, like a, a, a felt fabric that's laying over it, it's black. The, the gold stuff there is Quranic script. And uh, according to Islamic tradition, this is where many people, many pagan tribes would do their pilgrimages to this particular location. And inside it used to be all these different idols. But Muhammad, when he came back to Mecca and conquered the city, he removed all the idols because, of course, he believed in uh, a monotheistic God or monotheism. And so, ever since then, this is the direction that every Muslim is supposed to face when they pray. Uh, by the way, this mosque is gigantic. I don't know if you can get a sense of the scale, but all those little dots are people. And when the, the Hajj happens and all these Muslims descend in the city, it is a sight to see. I mean, I'm just talking about it from like looking at YouTube. But there's like a million and a half Muslims that come around this area. This is an older picture, by the way. They've since expanded this section here, added another section of stands in that section. I mean, I think they've added another, is it 800,000 or a million uh, capacity for people? So it's now, I mean, it's the largest religious gathering on the planet. And since in Islam, as we'll talk about next week, they have a meritorious-based system of salvation, meaning the way you get into heaven is by doing good deeds that eventually overtake your bad deeds. And this deed of making a pilgrimage to Mecca is the most greatest deed you can commit. When you do this, it literally overturns all kinds of bad deeds you've, you've committed. So it's a huge, huge deed indeed. No pun intended, all right. Um, now, certain exceptions are made. So if you're physically unable because of disability or financially incapable, then they make exceptions to some people uh, who can't afford or make it to Mecca. But apart from that, every Muslim is required to do this pilgrimage. Now, I want to take some questions. Before I do, though, I want to make you aware of a couple of resources that are available. Um, if you want more information about what I've been talking about, or if for some reason you can't make it next week because you're not a Christian. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> uh, I wrote a short book called The Ambassador's Guide to Islam. It's very short. It's like 60 pages. You can knock this guy out in like, you know, an hour on a weekend. But it kind of distills sort of the essential components of, um, of what I've talked about and more. And, uh, and of course, it also covers some material that I cover, uh, we'll cover next week. But if you want to get this, I know on the book table they're selling them. I don't earn a, a penny off the sale of these books, so I'm just making this resource aware, available to you because I think it would be helpful.